scripture reading before the lesson this morning is from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And the whole church said, do you believe it without Jesus? Do you believe it? Without Jesus, we've got nothing. We uh, can stack all our good stuff up, right? And, and when we compare it to Jesus, it is nothing. And Paul has been reminding us consistently throughout the book of Romans that you can't stand up and say, look at all the good I've done. Or, again, for the Jews, look at the heritage I have and all the gifts that I have. And it adds up to anything but nothing without, say it, without Jesus. That's exactly right. Those first five verses, and we're going to look at how they fit into the context of these next three chapters. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. Some of the most uh, controversial, we'll say it that way, chapters in all of Romans, maybe to a certain extent in all of the New Testament. Because of the... The way that we read them, and, and, and sometimes we don't always read them in the, in the context and in the way in which Paul expressed them. But he starts out with something very human, doesn't he? He's going to go on to make some very big statements about God's purposes and about how God acts in the world. But he starts it off with very human language. You may remember back to chapter 7, the humanness of Paul saying, Without the Spirit, I was a person who, no matter how much I longed to do the good that God wanted me to do, I, I was unable to do it without the Spirit. But when the Spirit comes, remember chapter 8? We spent three weeks, three weeks kind of unfolding chapter 8, and the joy of the idea that as those who have been baptized into Christ, as those who have let Him take hold of our lives, who become slaves of righteousness rather than slaves of sin, God changes us and is continually changing us and is changing the world through us. And that's a joyful thing. But it started with chapter 7 and his mourning over where we are without the Spirit. And now, before he enters into this section, he talks about his mourning over his people. I would say at some level you're not human if you don't relate to this in some way. Not, by the way, that you pray continually that those who are called Jews or Israel would receive Christ. And it may be that that's a regular prayer for you, and that's, that's okay. But what I mean is, is that you pray for your people, don't you? You know people in your life, maybe people in your family. Maybe most painfully you know parents or you know children who, when we sing that song without him, we can make a personal statement that I know I have him. He is with me. I have the assurance of his spirit to affirm that. But we recognize those in our lives around us who for whatever reasons they may be, sin still has control in. And we mourn over them. 
And how many of us at some point who are in that situation, and, and I would say particularly if it's a parent or a child in that relationship, maybe a grandchild, wouldn't say, I'll give it up if you could give it to them. It is an amazing way in which Paul connects himself in his ministry. Again, interestingly, a ministry that he will say over and over again is a ministry to Gentiles. That that is what Jesus called him to on the road to Damascus. And said, this is going to be what you're going to be about. But his heart, his passion is still with his people. With those who are connected to God through Israel. And he can say through the law, through the traditions, whatever it may be. But in a powerful way, Paul connects his ministry directly to Jesus. Who didn't say, I'll give it all up to save them who did give it all up to save them. Now, the rest of the sentence is that was not the last of the story, correct? That was not the last phrase of the story. But I think if you read your New Testaments, and particularly if you read your Gospels, you have to hang on the tension of that moment when Jesus laid his life down. Will God raise him up? Will we truly defeat sin and death through the resurrection? Will his sacrifice be rewarded by God's faithfulness in raising him up? And the answer was, yes, hallelujah and hallelujah. And Paul, in a very powerful way, steps into it and says, I would give it all up. I would lay down my life. And I would say, in reality, Paul says it a little more emphatically. I don't know if you've ever heard of love language before. When we love something, we, we speak differently about it, don't we? Um, whether it's a new car and when we have a new car, we talk about how they're just the most comfortable seats we've ever sat in. Have you ever heard yourself say that? Or maybe, you know, if you're me, and then, you know, again, I'm weirdo, so that's okay. I will brag about the fact that my car, I've been driving it for over 100,000 miles, and it gets over 42 miles to the gallon. Now, that's a fact, but bragging about it is a little bit silly, isn't it? But that's the way we talk about our stuff. We talk about our new things. We talk about things that we love. We talk about and kind of in, we increase how much we like it. Have you ever heard somebody say, the seat in my car is some, so comfortable, I think I could just sleep there. The problem is anybody who says that has never actually tried to sleep in a car, amen? Because it is not where you want to sleep, but it's the thing you say about something you love. And and I don't know, I'll be real honest with you, I don't know that Paul would have literally gone to hell and stayed there, been separating to Christ forever, if his people would be saved. Because in reality, Paul knew that it doesn't work that way, does it? Because it isn't about Paul laying down his life for his people, it's about the fact that, fact, that Jesus did lay down his life and fact that God did raise him up. Somebody say amen to some of that. As you read, and, and I need to tell you that, that there is absolutely no way for me to spend two sermons over the next two weeks preaching from chapters 9 through 11 for you to hear everything that Paul wants to say. I would also go on to say that in reality, Scripture is never intended for us to fully understand it just in a cursory reading. The invitation consistently, and particularly you can point to the wisdom literature above all else. The wisdom literature asks us to day and night meditate, morning to evening, on the words of God. Amen? 
And so the idea that we can just sort of catch it, oh, yes, I figured out what he's got to say. In fact, I would say the simpler answer you have from Scripture, the more likely it is that you haven't really dug in. You haven't really let it pour over you. Because in reality, when we dig into Scripture, it seems that other than, by the way, in the beginning God, amen, that Jesus has been raised, amen, and that Jesus is coming again. Other than those three simple things, the rest of it kind of gets interesting because every time it weaves this way it seems to weave back the other way and these chapters are an example of that I need to give you a little bit of context this isn't all the context I should give so I could give but I I hope that you'll give me a little bit of a hearing to kind of place chapters 9 through 11 in their context I haven't showed you this slide in a while but I want to bring it back up again because it's a, a reality here Because as we did in some of the opening chapters, again, a lot of the contrast was between Jews who proclaimed Christ and Gentiles who proclaimed Christ. And there's a reason for that in this church particularly. That's true basically in every church that Paul ever planted, but it's particularly true here. Because what we know historically, and Paul is writing into this context, if not 54 itself, very soon after that, that Paul's going to be writing, but in 49 A.D., The Jews, everyone who claimed to be, and by the way, that would have also included anyone who proclaimed Christ but continued to practice Jewish tradition, would have included those Christians, were evicted, and again, I love the way it's said here, I will remind you, disturbances in the synagogue instigated by Christus. And if you've read any Latin or if you've read any Greek, Maybe just seen the words on a, on a painted on a wall in a chapel somewhere, something like that. What you'll recognize is the phonic spelling of the Latin representation of the word. What does it sound like? Christ. And so the thought was that the controversies around Christ within the Jewish community created enough disturbance that Claudius says, we're not having these people in Rome anymore. And he kicked them all out. Let's just be sure and say that you and I have no idea what it is for the government to be heavy-handed. Because in a single stroke of a pen, a single stamp of his fist, they were kicked out of town. Which created a church that was entirely Gentile. Who so far as to say, maybe uniquely in all the churches that Paul planted, although there would have been many that would have been predominantly Gentile, it may have been the only church that for a period of five years was exclusively Gentile. And there were no more arguments about, oh, wait, 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 it's, it's Sabbath, we have to do things this way at church. Or, wait, 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 uh, you can't serve that kind of food with this kind of food. Or, wait, 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 that baby's eight days old and it's male, we got to circumcise it. Jesus would want us to do that. They didn't have to answer any of those questions for five years. And then Nero comes to office, and he officially reopens Rome to the Jews. And it is in that context of a church, fully Gentile, having been able to practice Christianity in a completely Gentile setting, that the Jews come back home and come back to church, and the Gentiles are not exactly sure what to do with them. If you've spent any time in churches, you know that churches can pick find lots of things to disagree about amen you're in a church that has a kitchen connected to it and that was a controversy at some point you're in a church that has chairs 
as opposed to pews. And while it wasn't a big deal, I can promise you there were folks who were, wait a minute, what are we going to do with this? There's always a controversy. But the argument between people who felt like to be Christian you had to be Jewish and people who heard Paul say, no, it is only through Christ and the law can't accomplish those things, were constantly fighting with each other in the first century. Sometimes amiably, sometimes not so amiably. But even more behind it, and I need to place this as best I can, maybe deeper behind this context is the echo of the Roman Empire and the idea of empire itself. If I could explain it in this way. The idea of empire is the, the idea that there is one group of people who have established themselves as most powerful, generally through military might, and that they get to make the rules for everybody else. You've never heard anything like that before, have you? You've never experienced that in any way, have you? You've never heard people talk like, I have the biggest stick, so I get to make the rules. There were very few things that were contrary to what Jesus wanted the church to be about. Do you remember Jesus's, what he did just before he did the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated? Sometimes, at some level, it's a little bit interesting that we have, we have the Lord's Supper without remembering that just before he served the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, I want you to become the least among them. I want you to be one who washes feet. It's not the only time Jesus said things like that. Jesus was consistently saying, so you two guys want to sit at my right hand and my left hand, and what I'm telling you is that in the kingdom, the first will be, and it is the last and the lowly, the small ones, the insignificant ones, the, those who the empire would run over without even taking a second concern with themselves. Those are the people who are first in the kingdom. And so behind this at some level, Paul has preached this message of grace. You didn't earn it. You're not good enough for this. But Jesus gave it anyway to these Gentiles. And unfortunately, I don't know, have you ever hung around in a culture enough for it just kind of rub off on you a little bit? They had hung around in a place called Rome long enough to watch empire do its thing. And when the, when the Jews came back in, to a certain extent impoverished, by being sent out, glad to leave their homes. And there wasn't anybody standing in the doorway of the home and said, no, no, you can't move in here. This They'll be back someday. It was forfeit. The Jews come back in, in many ways, as a defeated people. But it was where their home was. It was where their livelihood came from. And they came back in, in huge numbers when Nero reopened the door. And to a certain extent, Paul recognizes that the Gentile Christians are living in empire. He said, well, I want to know. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to concern myself with your troubles. We're going to do it my way. Because we've been in charge for five years, and we've done a good job of it, and y'all just better start towing the line. Paul has spent several sections of this book reaffirming what's important about what God gave us through the story of Israel, starting with Abraham and carrying it through, even the exile and the return from exile. And that Jesus, as the passage that Jeff read, 
and that Jesus came from the lineage of Abraham. But here he will make his strongest argument about how, as the ruling class of Gentiles, they were not to see themselves as greater or better than the Gentiles, than the Jews, excuse me. If you've spent much time in looking at the book of Romans, you're aware that, that there's a, a central role in 9 through, 10, 9 through 11. And I would actually say to you, it's not the most important section in the letter. I would say that chapter 8 is actually the most important section in the letter. And I have reasons for that, and I'm not going to expound on those at this point. We've already run out of time for expounding on things. But I do want you to kind of see an outline, because in reality, it is extremely difficult to talk about any part of 9 through 11 without it being in the whole of 9 through 11. I'm going to spend two weeks on 9 through 11, and it will be a very poor investment of my time if you don't spend some time reading between times. And if you don't take the time to underline in your Bible, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. And maybe follow some of the notes that are in the footnotes. And maybe ask a friend. Feel free to ask me what, you think is what we think is going on there. But as a quick outline, I just want to show it to you. Verses nine, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 is this oath that we just read. Paul enters into this conversation in a very personal way. It's personal to me. I love my people. And as much as I have been the, 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 the apostle to the Gentiles, that has not removed my love for my people. Chapter 9, six through, verses 6 through 29 is going to be a section where it talks about Jewish unbelief and Gentile belief. And these are not God's failure, but in reality, a fulfillment of what Scripture's always been pointing to. Flip through your Old Testament real quick. Remember those stories from Bible class and remember how often the person who saved God's people was not a Jew at all. Rahab saves those spies. Would the, would the people have been as successful? Would they have been willing to invade the land if the spies hadn't survived? You might remember somebody named Ruth. And, and you don't say Ruth without saying what? Ruth the Moabites which was the most heinous of all people, and yet she comes in to become the mother of the father of the father of David, the king, who in many ways scripture points to is here's what, what we kind of point to as the way a king can be. Constantly the story is entering, in, entering into this understanding of, whoa, 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 you guys think you're so special, Jews? I can use anybody. Somebody say Amen. And when God says, I can use anybody, it has to include people like me. And so it was for fulfillment that God allowed Jewish unbelief and Gentile belief to come about. Chapter 9, verse 30 through 1021, the center section there. You might see how the, the indentations are working here. Paul affirms that any Jewish unbelief is because they resisted God. Or they are resisting God. Again, you have to read the story. And constantly as you read the story, you discover these people in the Old Testament. And by the way, in the New Testament. Who God has wonderful things planned for. And yet they choose to push him away and say, I, I don't think I'll do it my way. In fact, go back to page one of the Bible. Actually, we'll call it page two. 
God had these two wonderful people who put in the most perfect place there ever was. If there was anybody who could ever say, where I am is the greatest place on earth, they could say it and it was true. Adam and Eve. And God said, this is the way that you'll continue to enjoy the blessing of this perfect place. And what did they say? I think we'll figure it out better for ourselves. It's kind of a familiar phrase for me, at least. God, I think I'll figure it out for myself. Maybe it is for you. We continue to unfold chapters 9 through 11 with 10.22 through 11.32. And the affirmation that God has not rejected Israel. Even though they may be resisting him and even though they have disobeyed and fallen into unbelief, he ends with the idea of God has not rejected Israel. On its surface, we'll come back to it, there's more to it than just what is said. And interestingly, as he opens with a personal statement, he ends with this incredible hymn to God that I think maybe if you'll, if you'll work hard to get through all of these three chapters and you can get to 1133, you'll just be glad you got there because it's a beautiful statement about God and what he does. But if you spend much time there, it's not easy. There are two primary assertions that cause struggles in interpreting these chapters. The first is found in that center section in the middle. One that we might even say is how the three chapters fold together to point us to that middle section. And that is this affirmation that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we say, without him, I would be nothing. Remember the song that you sang? The first is found in that center section. This is in chapter 10, verse 13. In reality, it is quoting Joel, chapter 2. And it's kind of interesting that Paul ties this maybe climactic statement in this whole section to a, a statement that was made by, by Peter, or is recorded as Peter's statement, in the book of Acts on the Sermon on Pentecost. And so in a powerful sort of way, Paul ties this preaching to the Gentiles all the way back to the preaching at Pentecost to what was largely an exclusively Jewish audience. And so the idea that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is not a New Testament proclamation. In reality, it's a Bible proclamation. Again, if you want to turn back to page 1 and 2 of the Bible, the one thing they did wrong was not call on the name of the Lord. They said, no, we'll call on the name of us knowing what is good and evil. And just about every single time that Israel or those who God called to follow him failed, it was almost always because they decided, I'm not going to call on the name of the Lord, I'm going to stand here on this roof, see Bathsheba over the way and say, I want that, not I want the Lord. It's a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement that opens the door for everyone. It's a powerful statement that it says it doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. If you find your way to the Lord and will proclaim his name, will put him on, and Paul in chapter 6 will say, what is it to call on the name of the Lord? What is it to make confession? What is it to trust him? 
the waters of baptism, but ultimately is saying, I can't do it without God, and I can't do it without Jesus. And we love that statement. The second pivotal statement in these three chapters is found in chapter 11, verse 26, just as we're closing out. And all Israel will be saved. If you've ever read Romans, there are very few scriptures that you kind of have to, oh, oh, wait a minute. I thought anyone who called on the name of the Lord. And I thought that Israel had rejected Jesus over and over and over again. And Paul says, as he close out, all Israel will be saved. By the way, again, a quote from the Old Testament. Numerous passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah chapter 30 particularly. These two exist in tension with each other. These two exist in the same argument from Paul. These two exist in Christian teaching. And we have a really hard time reconciling them sometimes. There's a whole development of teaching in Christian uh, teaching from the Bible that is, is hinged on how you interpret these two ideas. It is called a lot of things. One is called predestination, which you may have heard of. Another way of talking about it is uh, God's omnipotent power. Or, as there is a, a, a whole wing of, of study that's called divine foreknowledge. How you come to conclusions here are very much about how you read the Bible. But I'm going to be honest enough to say that I recognize in myself my own predisposition to one answer to that question. And so, I'll just give you a very quick example. I spent how many weeks on chapter 8 of Romans? Three. How many weeks am I going to spend on 9 through 11? Two. You might call that unfair, and you'd be right. In reality, if I found myself in a different kind of predisposition towards Scripture, you may have heard it as something like Calvinism. Have you ever heard of Calvinism before? Or you may have heard it as someone who espouses the idea of once saved, always saved. You may have heard of that before. Okay. Calvinism is kind of the technical term for it. And I'm what's called, are you ready for this? An Arminian. Are you ready? Arminian. Say Arminian. That means that I believe that from the first page of the Bible, God said humankind has the right to choose. And I can quote you scripture for that. I can just quoted one. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A whole lot of other ones, by the way. You like John 3.16? God so loved the world that who he gave his only son that, come on, whoever believed in him, right? Now, by the way, if, if I were a Calvinist, if I were a person who believed in this kind of idea of predestination, I could also quote a whole lot of scriptures. Gospel of John, Jesus says to the disciples, you didn't call me, I called you. And none of you that I called will be lost, except the one who is always going to be lost. And that language will point you a lot towards what Calvin was convicted of. Long time before Calvin, Augustine was one who wrote on this idea. 
So I have to admit to you that as I preach this section, you need to know where I'm coming from. And I can say to you in perfect honesty that I can see the way the teaching unfolds in 9 through 11. And are you ready? That when Paul talks about Israel in this last section of 11, he has already made a transition in the section just before the statement, which he also pointed to in verse 6 of chapter 9, that not everyone who is Israel is actually God's Israel. Not all of Israel are faithful to God. I might say it this way to you. Do you know people who say, oh yeah, I know Jesus, and yet everything in their life points to, I'm going to do it my way. And you recognize those two things are contrary to each other. Amen? And that when we come to chapter 11, and as the argument unfolds in that last section, Paul moves from any kind of idea of national Israel to the way that he very familiar in several of his letters will refer to the church as Israel. That we are the continuation of the story of Israel. And that having been born through Christ, we are born in the way that Abraham was God's person. And you and I, in faith, not because of blood or heredity or national association, are Israel. Now, very quickly, some of you are curious, and you're like, wait a minute, I've not heard a whole lot about what he's talking about, and I'd like to know more about it. And there's a book I want to recommend, it's called Divine Foreknowledge. Uh, this is the way they talk about it, and it's in a series of books, it's kind of interesting, they call it the Four Views series, but there's some books that's only three views, and there's some books that there are five views, and all those kind of things. But it started out always four, and this would be a great place to read. Not an easy read. But at the idea, if I want to understand this controversy, then this book can help you in that process. And by the way, it would be absolutely impossible for me to unfold that in a timely way from this pulpit. And by the way, you've already been bored for about the last ten minutes when I started talking about it. So I'm not going to subject you to it. I want to give some practical implications because what Paul is pointing to is the idea that as people of God, just like Abraham was called and just like Jacob was called instead of Esau, and just the same way that Judah became the, the line through which things move forward as opposed to all the tribes, you and I are called by God. And I want you to celebrate being called by God. I want you to celebrate being called by God. I think if you will read chapters 9 through 11, you will find these applications. We're going to dig back again back next week. But I want to plant these seeds and ask you to think of them now. First of all, to celebrate God's calling, we've got to recognize that calling is never based on our goodness. God didn't call Abraham because he was good enough. And Jesus didn't call Andrew, Peter, James, and John because they were good enough. He decided to call them 
And the interesting thing to me as always is we don't hear very many stories. There's one particularly where Jesus called somebody to follow him and be his disciples and they said, not going to happen. So don't think for a minute that everybody that Jesus called responded. But a very powerful way, these responded in a way that changed the rest of their life. And you and I are called in that same way. But when we get arrogant and we say, God called me because he can really use me. I'm not sure what he can do with the rest of y'all. Then we have left out God's calling. Celebrating God's calling. Sorry, uh, Lowell, I moved forward too many slides very quickly. So jump all the way down to celebrating God's calling. One more. And one. Thank you. These guys have hard work to do because I jump around sometimes. So say thank you to Lowell, who's covering today. So everybody say thank you to Lowell. Number two, if we're going to celebrate God's calling, we've got to always be inviting God's word to speak to us and not just inviting his word to speak to us, but we've got to be listening for what it has to say. Do you think that God's calling on Peter, Andrew, James, and John ended on the day on the shore of the of the Sea of Galilee. It became their life, not just for three years with Jesus, it became their life until they died. And their death, for the most part, could be directly attributed to the fact that they wanted to hear what God said and they wanted to tell what Jesus did. Amen? Don't think that being called is somehow or another an excuse to kind of sit back and say, oh, I guess I got it. Yay, me! It's an invitation to hear and to listen. Finally, and this is true of Scripture all the way back to Adam and Eve and all the way forward for as long as God will continue to call his people, and that is that calling is always a responsibility, not a privilege. If God calls you, it's because he has something for you to do. If God calls you, it's because he has he wants the world to know him better because of your life. And you may say, by the way, let's just be sure and step back and say, is my good life good enough for the world to, to learn something for me? And the answer is, don't you dare answer for me. Because the answer is no. What the world can learn from me is that God can even use mistakes. And God can even use people that are sometimes a little prideful. And God can use people that are sometimes a little bit selfish to still accomplish his goals. Amen? And I don't want to ever let my failings keep me from fulfilling the responsibility that God has called me to. And I don't want you to do that either. Finally, I want to affirm that God wants you. God wants me. God wants us. Amen? God wants all of us to be his are you his are you his through Jesus are you his because you have reenacted the death burial and resurrection of Jesus through the waters of baptism are you his and you want to be his for the rest of your life if we can help you in that journey 
Right now would be a great time to come. You could also speak to any of our elders. Any, you can grab the person next to you and say, I want to know more about that. And if they can't answer your questions, they will help you find someone who does. If you're online with us, we would invite you to, to text us at 979-217-3300. We want to start that conversation. And if today is the day that you want to say, I hear God calling like I've never heard him before, and I want to put Jesus on in baptism, I want to invite you to come down this aisle. We'll get wet in that water as we stand and as we sing. My